Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today's episode wades into some pretty deep waters and asks some pretty unusual questions, like, what does biotech have to do with backcountry skiing? What does microalgae have to do with skis? And why did the founder of Forefront Skis, Matt Sturbins, agree to get involved with a new startup ski brand called Wonder Alpine? So in order to get some answers, we sat down in Blister HQ with Charlie Dimler, the co-founder and CEO of the Berkeley, California-based biotech company, Checkerspot, and Wonder Alpine founder, Matt Sturbins, to talk about the creation of Wonder Alpine, its relation to, and the mission of Checkerspot, and more. So get yourself ready to dive deep and to think big in this one. And without further ado, let's get right to it. Matt Sturbins. Welcome to Blister Headquarters and to Crested Butte. Thank you very much. <laughs> Super pumped to be here. My first time here was when the X Games was here. And so, what year was that? Ish. Oh, man. I mean, it's probably 99 or 2000. Yeah. You know, I can tell you that Candy Tovex was 16. I don't know how old he is today. Um, and it was during the filming of 13, uh, which you see a lot of the big air uh, clips from that contest in the movie. So... It's kind of fun to come back, look around, you know, and, and enjoy this town, not blanketed with snow. Yeah. So it's a unique experience and pretty awesome. And we have a guest with you, Charlie Dimler. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you guys have been up to some pretty interesting and some pretty big things. And um, Matt, the recent news is you have this new uh, endeavor with a company called, well, called WNDR, Alpine, right? That's right. Um, many people obviously know you as a founder of Forefront. And as you know, the most pressing question here is, why do you hate vowels? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm a disenvoweler um, by intent, which is a definition of taking the vowels out of a word as it is... Uh, proven in the urban dictionary uh, that came up in the process of branding wonder alpine but you know realistically it's very difficult to protect a name intellectually uh, of a brand that's commonly used in the english language and if you can you know modify the spelling of that word um, without losing its meaning and also stylistically condense it so that you can be a little more fluid with the branding and style styling of the logo it, it fares fairly well. So uh, Forefront was one of those words where it was really long and kind of arduous to deal with. And so by condensing it, it became a, a logo of itself. And then as we got our act together and became more organized, we were able to start you know, protecting it as a trademark because it was so unique. And you know, given an opportunity to, to start another brand, I drew from previous experiences, areas where there were certain efficiencies. And so naturally when we looked at the name Wonder, I was like, dude, there's some balls we can eliminate. No. And <laughs> don't like discredit the fact that we have now four letters 
which works really well from a split down the seam type of branding initiative. It's true. So that's nice. It's a balance. How vowel fluid are you? In other words, let's say we needed to do a uh, captions, right, for this podcast. Am I allowed to just spell it out as W-A-N-D-E-R or W-I-N-D-E-R or or W-A-U-U-N? Like, are there, would I get in trouble? Well, we prefer you to use the DIN font, all caps, W-N-D-R. Okay. And if need be, the modifier wonder with an O, not A or I for that matter. Okay. So we are very specific about so the styling of our name. If we always refer to this brand forever as Wander, that might not be. Like, I kind of have a thing. I think Blizzard is not that happy with me, <laughs> you know, because for nine years now, sure, I pronounce it the right way. Yeah. Um, but uh, we don't want to maybe get off, you know, in this first yeah. you know, live conversation about Wonder with me steering people to the wrong brand name. That's right. not what you want. Okay. okay. We, liked, we like Wonder Alpine. Wonder Alpine? Yeah. And okay. when it stands out in, in text, capitalized, disemvolved. Disemvolved. Mm, All right. Yeah. Tell me a little bit of the backstory, how you got involved and how we ended up sitting in this room today together. Sure. So I first got a call from Charlie. Uh, I guess this was late May of 2018. And he was just, you know, on a hunch from a friend of mine in Park City um, looking to speak to someone who has ski building experience. And I think within the first maybe 10 minutes of the conversation, he presented that they were a startup materials company and that he was just probing to kind of get my vision for how materials play a role in the industry, kind of current state of affair. And so immediately I went to, well, send me whatever you guys have made and I'll see if we can glue it together and let you know how it performs. And he was very reluctant to like allow that to be the next step in the conversation. We continued to dive into like, you know, more visionary or like oriented conversation around what materials do you feel are empowering innovation in the space today? Um, how do you feel like your contribution in the industry as a builder um, has come through to fruition? Are you satisfied with the results? Do you feel like there's something more that you have to offer that you don't have perhaps the tools um, to, uh, you know, develop that architecture. So, uh, it was really interesting to meet Charlie for the first time. We started talking, you know, on a regular weekly basis. Um, sometimes we just shoot to shoot the breeze about like our personal lives. And, um, I know that like after like a month and a half or so, I was like, Charlie, like, I know your time is really like valuable and as is mine, like, where are we going with this? And, it started to come to surface that like he saw a real opportunity with the material platform at Checker Spot to get involved in a ski application as like a proof of concept and as a way to lead into market certain types of material innovations that they were working on. And so with the idea of like utilizing something of already prior existence and just applying it to a consumer product and seeing if it performs a unique way, he was more so interested in like applying the knowledge of where I felt limitations were and seeing if we can solve those problems from the molecular level and getting more engaged in the development team at Checkerspot. And so at that point, we kind of discussed about me integrating in with the team at Checkerspot. And that ultimately led to a departure with Forefront, you know, which was a standing post of about 17 years, almost half my life. 
um, just about the same amount of age as I have been, you know, uh, with my wife now, mm-hmm. <laughs> prior, prior girlfriend now married. And uh, so it was a huge, like, new chapter for me. But I felt like this was a door that had opened that I needed to walk through. And that I felt that there was also some responsibility to appeasing my appetite to continue to evolve as a ski builder. So, yeah, in August, I started with Checker Spot. So it's been about a year now. And, um, yeah, it's been sweet. Obviously, there's been a lot of developments that have led to launching Wonder Alpine. Um, but it was a crash course on molecular biology for a while there. <laughs> you know, I mean, we think of this, like, topic of science as, like, we're all dummies and we don't know how to answer it, ask any of the right questions. We're asking all the right questions, actually, because they're very, like, like casual but meaningful perspectives that when you get down the wormhole of technology, you find your spell, yourself kind of like uh, speaking in an abbreviated language where perspectives don't often get shared because you're drilling so deep and focused that when you pull back and like just ask like layman's questions, it's actually very thought provoking. So I felt like I had a lot of like perspective to offer to Checkerspot early on, even though I knew nothing about molecular models and things of which pertain to molecular biology. I had an application perspective of like, so that's cool, but like, why does this make any difference? Why do we need this? What's the point of all this research? Are you guys just staying busy? Is it because you went to school for a long time? And you got super smart and like, this is what you do now? Like, how is this gonna be part of my daily life? And that was really fun to kind of enter into some of those conversations with scientists in Berkeley early on and to start developing my perspective and understanding of the technology. And so that's kind of been what I've been up to for, you know, I guess the last 12 months. I like the idea of you like sauntering into some lab with all these like badass scientists in Berkeley and be like, you guys still just wasting a bunch of time today? (laughs) Anybody want to go ride dirt bikes? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So Charlie, we got to talk about checker spot, man. This is a, this is a pretty wild thing. And uh, let's say, first of all, if you're in the elevator with somebody and you got to give them the one sentence take on what checker spot is your response is we are designing high performance materials that the world hasn't seen up until this point and they have the added benefit of being more sustainable than the existing alternatives okay when you say this is something that these materials that sort of the world hasn't seen before what are we talking about so when you think about the 20th century model of like where products have come from and where materials have originated, it's really a story of what's been available at commodity scale and commodity price. So think petroleum as an example, or think like big agricultural commodity oils like palm oil and you know, soy and sunflower oil, the big vegetable oils. And that, that leaves us with a palette of molecular building blocks that I think surprises some folks in how limited it is. And we, my co-founder and I at Checkerspot, recognized from past experience that there was a way to tap into a natural biodiversity of other molecular building blocks that exist in nature today that have just never been explored or interrogated in any meaningful way, simply because they don't fit the existing industrial infrastructure. You can't, you can't supply them at big enough scale to really make a difference. And so very talented material scientists and chemists at big companies that 
you know, a lot of folks recognize, like the BASFs and Covestras of the world, just haven't focused as much on that natural biodiversity. And that's fundamentally what industrial biotechnology has unlocked, is the ability to access that natural biodiversity of really interesting building blocks that weren't available previously at scale that now we can produce at large scale through molecular biology. I suspect that some people hearing you say that maybe kind of freeze up and are like, wait, this sounds real Frankensteinian here. Like you on the one hand, I think just said, we're talking about unlocking materials that already exist in nature. And so on the one hand, that's a story about, look, folks, this these are materials that are coming from the natural world. We're not talking about new things that have never existed before, new materials, right? And so help, help me think about that and just get situated. Yeah, the building blocks exist in nature. The analogy that I would draw to say petroleum is petroleum is extracted as a fossil fuel from the earth, but to get to whether it's you know high density polyethylene or to get to polyester requires chemistry to get to those materials. So now coming back to checker spot, there are these natural building blocks that exist on the planet, but haven't been assembled in a way to get to new materials. So talk a little bit about how you got to the point where you decided to reach out to Matt. Yeah, I mean, the the reason that I reached out to Matt is that, I mean, the, the short answer is I was learning. And I mean, Matt talked about how we've had a number of conversations during that period of time. And it, the topics did span across a wide range of, of subjects. But, but I was really interested to hear about his experience at Forefront, particularly as it related to thinking about materials selection and materials innovation. Because going back a few years, I knew that there was tremendous potential for a biotechnology platform to create new molecular building blocks and to design new high-performance materials. And, and when you look at the biotechnology space in general, you, you see an enormous amount of capital that's been invested around you know, lowering the cost of gene sequencing, around you know, creating you know, new DNA constructs in a more efficient way that are more robust around the miniaturization, around you know, developing machine learning and artificial intelligence to help throughput, you know, investing in automation to like, you know, get you know, higher throughput, lower cost systems in place. But why does all that matter? Like, why is that important? And uh, I have this belief that it matters only to the extent that we're delivering products that, you know, make the world better, that deliver better performance or, you know, better for human health or better for the planet. And I was looking for application sets where there doesn't seem to be a lot of innovation. And, you know, I happen to be an outdoor enthusiast and love backcountry skiing. And that brought me to Innsbruck, Austria, of all places, back in 2015, where I did the ski building workshop. And it was like an awesome experience. We'll probably talk a little bit about that. But, but one of the things that was abundantly clear is that the materials that were being used, at least in the context of this workshop, were the same materials that have been used for a few decades. And, and there were things like, 
that I knew were within the strike zone of what a biotechnology platform could address. And so that just planted a seed. That was all. Fast forward a few years and walking the floor at Outdoor Retailer and at ISPO and just trying to learn and, and talk to whomever would, you know, engage in a conversation, I was really confused. Like it seemed to me from, from my vantage point, really as a consumer, that everybody was building skis with the exact same stuff and in some cases talking about them with different names and, you know, assembling them in different ways and, and in like deploying really creative designs but with really the same materials. And that was intriguing to me. And so that, you know, brought me, we, by that time we had started Checker Spot and we were thinking a lot about first application sets and we, you know, we're talking with investors and, you know, people on the marketing side. And then someone, you know, was like, you need to talk to Matt Sturbance. Like he has been talking about a lot of these same themes, um, especially through the lens of materials. And so when I reached out, it wasn't like we were recruiting somebody. It wasn't like we were, you know, trying to, you know, build out this initiative. It was just to learn. And then I felt like I was talking to a kindred spirit. I felt like we clicked immediately. I mean, even, you know, I think on the very first conversation, you know, we were talking about one another's families. And I was like, this is someone that is relatable, that is human, that is thinking about the world and, you know, asking the same kinds of questions that I am. And, you know, it was like, I don't know, a month later, I got on a plane and came out and visited Salt Lake and we spent like the entire day together. And it was pretty clear that there was a project to pursue together. So you are a materials guy. You also are a backcountry skier. You spent some time in a ski building workshop went to outdoor retailers and you're like, wow, this is kind of intriguing. Like there doesn't seem to be that much genuine innovation happening from a materials application point of view in all of these outdoor products we love and are passionate about. Uh, I'm smiling because I feel like you just gave me a compliment that I don't deserve. I'm not a materials guy. Okay. Like there are material scientists and materials engineers that are, that have gone to school for years that have like, innovated in this space that have, you know, patents and, you know, products that have come to market. That's not me. I'm, <laughs> my graduate degree was in business. Um, I think the most significant learning from business school was recognizing how little I know <laughs> and that, you know, life was going to be a journey of learning. And if I was to put any kind of label on what I aspire to be or to do, it's a student and it's to like surround myself with people like Matt or like Scott, my co-founder, that are, are the ones that really have that creativity, that really have that, um, that DNA to be able to bring really cool things to the world. Um, I'm just curious and try to bring these people together. So that was good, helpful clarification. So you're not the materials guy yourself, but your undergrad or grad school was in business, both? I studied, I mean, <laughs> undergrad, I was a history major, but I was pre-med, so I took a lot of science and yep. went through the whole pre-med curriculum. Um, but then decided not to go uh, to medical school. I went to Wall Street and then really fell in love with business 
and the integration or the marriage between business and science. And so I've been in biotechnology, the life sciences for 22 years now. Huh. Um, and then along the way, I decided that you know, I would go to business school. Where'd you go to business school? I went to Stanford Business School. Okay. Spent a couple of years right out of college in investment banking. Um, realized really quickly that I was not like a career investment banker. I wanted to be a part of like building companies and joined a biotech company that was based out in California. So I moved out west. Um, that was pretty uh, life-changing personally and professionally. And then um, spent eight years working for a company that was in drug development, creating you know, therapeutics for cancer. Um, and it was during that eight-year period that I took some time off to go to business school. Um, and then ultimately decided to move on and I joined uh, another company that was focused on uh, developing molecular biology and chemical engineering of biotech, but for industrial applications. And it was a company that was pursuing renewable energy and big commodity chemicals. And I was there for about eight years. And it was during that time that I recognized that there were some really interesting applications and opportunities to innovate around materials design and development. But this prior company, they were primarily looking at big, big sectors like fuel. And is that fair to say? Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. Transportation fuel, commodity chemicals, yeah, yeah. based on molecular biology and oils coming from microbes. So then what led you to decide, all right, well, there are other opportunities and other possible and potential applications with these materials. Let's start this thing called Checker Spot. It was the integration of recognizing that with drug development, you're innovating around biotechnology to create medicine that is really valuable, that you that patients can't get from other sources. And we probably don't want to go off on a tangent talking about, you know, the pay or payee system of the U.S. healthcare infrastructure. There's a lot that we could unpack there. But there's premiums paid for drugs that come from biotechnology. Now, then I moved on to this other company that was producing, using the same kind of tools of biotechnology, but producing commodities, super low value, low cost uh, point molecules. And I couldn't reconcile that difference. During my time at this company, we discovered that we could create and like build high value stuff, things that aren't available at scale. And those could be assembled into high performance materials. And it, we couldn't see examples of other you know, groups in the world really pursuing that with uh, real intention. And so that was just too compelling to ignore. And uh, I teamed up with my co-founder, Scott, and we started Checkerspot in 2016 to pursue that vision of designing materials using biology and chemistry to get to high performance high value material applications. So let's talk about the, the technology here. What exactly are you guys up to? What are you working on? Checkerspot is a materials company first and foremost. So we're agnostic 
on what kind of biotechnology tools we deploy. That being said, we're really excited about the first class of organism that we've prioritized, and that is where our focus lies. That class of organism is microalgae. Microalgae are fascinating, and we can circle back and talk more specifically about why they're so interesting. But we're, we're using certain strains of microalgae to produce uh, novel oils, also known as triglycerides, that uh, have interesting chemistry that we can then assemble. And our initial focus from a materials perspective is in two classes of materials derived from microalgal oils. And those two classes are one, polyurethanes, and two, uh, coatings and finishes. And so in those categories then, at this point, there's a whole lot of products I can think of that could make use of an alternative polyurethane, for example. But bringing this back to wonder, this is kind of where we're getting started. This is the first kind of iron in the fire in terms of a uh, application of these materials to a specific commercial product. Yeah, and the reason that we're focusing on this application is it, one part based on the history that I had talked about in terms of looking for interesting application sets, but I wouldn't you know, shortchange the serendipitous nature of Matt and I getting connected and really hitting it off and, and recognizing that you know, there's a consumer base that you know, feels like there, there's a lot more that can be done, and, and Matt can go into detail on this, a lot more that can, can be done in terms of pushing the sport forward. And you know, materials is a piece that might unlock that potential. And that's super compelling. Like, what a great way to deliver something to you know, a group of passionate enthusiasts that you know, can advance the sport. So that first and foremost became uh, a focus for us. And then, you know, how could we design those solution sets? Um, that's the work that we've been embarked on since Matt joined the team. So Matt, we're sitting in a room surrounded by many, many skis, some of them really good. Talk to me about what you either already know or what you are exploring right now, or what you believe could be true about why making use of some of this, I don't know what we want to call it, uh, microalgae tech, that can't be the best, uh, the best formulation, but you guys are welcome to have that if you decide that's, uh, <laughs> that's the best it gets. Just as long as you leave all the vowels in, then uh, you can have that. What is it about these new materials that you think has a, the potential of um, making a ski that is potentially different and or better on certain fronts? Sure. Well, the materials that we have been handling in ski building for at least as long as I've been in the game, which is a decade and a half or so, have been used and implemented widespread in ski design for decades. And we know the characteristics and capabilities of those materials. So the allure is to know what we don't know. And you are absolutely correct. I mean, the environment that we're in right now is insane. Um, there's so many skis on this wall, on the walls that surround us 360 degrees that are incredible performers. 
And I think that's a huge tip to the industry as a whole that we've really allowed that pendulum to come to balance in terms of what dimensions really drive solid, reliable performance in ski design today. So really this is an opportunity as a differentiator. You know, if I take my personal favorite 12 skis that are of this collection of 100 pairs and set them up against the wall, realistically, outside of aesthetics um, and a couple of tweaks in terms of shape, they are all made out of the exact same material. Different types of woods, polymers, steel, elastomers. And I feel like this is a real like entry point for us. Um, in 2019 as ski builders to start to think externally outside of the box materials that we've been delivered to build skis out of for decades now to come. And so when you identify ski shape and you identify an application, you are then left with an opportunity to start identifying new materials and how they could start to play a role in elevating the baseline of performance we've come to expect. And while we have been fishing outside of the boundaries of these materials for years, we have yet to be presented with an opportunity to dissect a material to the molecular level and build up its characteristics so that it can be superior in performing than what we have already realized um, and built with. So for me, that's really where I know Wonder Alpine stands alone because it's not typical for a ski brand to have this type of technology integrate into the vertical supply chain of the project. Um, usually you'd, you'd have to outsource something like this to a lab and just the general retail climate wouldn't allow for that kind of investment to create a completely new material derived from a, a novel origin, um, like microalgae, for example. So we're using this as an application to really drive that innovation and identify ways which we know we can improve. And like we've seen ski shapes evolve rapidly over the last few years. I feel like Forefront played a helping hand in that. And by result of those innovations, we've also started to encounter a lot of mechanical characteristics that are un undesired. And so there's a cause and effect, right? You know, we've all experienced like the instability of a full rocket ski on hard snow. And we're like, man, this thing is nervous Nelly. Like what? What, what, what's going on down there? I'm freaked out. And then you get on edge and everything goes calm again. Oh, thank God. And so these are just like ways that the materials are counter, counteracting different shape design. And so we know specific to application, the characteristics that we're seeking to achieve. And now we have an opportunity to leverage a completely new origin of material to solve some of those problems. And that's really unique and exciting for me. And just to be clear for a second, I mean, Matt, when you're talking about, you know, it's uncommon for a ski brand to have the kind of very significant investment in, say, R&D and the like. I mean, Charlie, getting back to, as you're talking about the origins of Checkers Spot, I mean, the company you were working for was Solozyme, and you guys raised hundreds of millions of dollars, almost a billion dollars, I believe. And I take it a big chunk of that money was going toward R&D. So for anybody listening to this or still wondering, like, are these guys just kind of BSing and talking about, you know, how much was behind this? It's like, well, we're talking about a biotech company that had raised close to a billion dollars 
and was deploying a lot of that dough to do some very serious heavy lifting in terms of R and D. I mean, that's the that's the real backstory, right? To this, that's Jonathan. A critical piece to the story because a lot of what we're doing at Checker Spot is built on the shoulders of past experience and and what we saw and things that worked really well, but also some hard lessons learned. And that you're right, we raised. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, nearly a billion dollars. And a lot of that did go towards uh, R&D. A lot of it went towards building commercial scale manufacturing facilities. Um, A lot of it went towards commercial development, but again, really oriented around larger, more commodity-based markets as opposed to specialty and perhaps higher value uh, market applications. So Matt, let's talk about performance, right? So you are making this first Wonder Alpine ski, like right now, these are being pressed and built. So what have you identified so far in terms of like, we think on this first ski, we really like what we've done in terms of snow performance or life cycle or durability or weight to strength ratios? Like what should we be looking at right now? Sure. Well, specifically, we've integrated a high-density composite, which we've, you know, referenced as the algal composite core. And that has uh, created noteworthy bulk strength to weight benefits. So by working through formulation, we've been able to meet similar density characteristics of hardwoods and been able to vertically laminate and integrate that into a ski core. And the complement of a cellular material along a fibrous material has a unique sensation. So we've been able to improve the smoothness of the ride by the complement and strengths of those two materials working in harmony, as well as improve the strength, the weight characteristics, so that we're getting an equally powerful ski with less mass and or allowing us to at least balance the ski more proportionally for its application. Specifically, our goal is backcountry application. So balancing the weight in areas where you need that reinforcement, but you're also not hindered by having a heavier, say, tip and tail, um, where the material ends up weighting the ski down. And that's where things become a little bit more sluggish in terms of like overall mountain travel. So these are where like from a skier uh, performance point of view, we're seeing the benefits. We're also tooling up a lot of equipment uh, within the checker spot design lab which is where what I lead in Salt Lake City as a complement to Berkeley in the molecular foundry in terms of identifying unique characteristics of how that material's life cycle checks out. Because we know skis become kind of dead over time. They lose their kind of life. We have all kinds of ways to describe that, um, just as we can describe that in skateboards and other types of wood core applications in action sports that just kind of lose the pop and life of that product. Introducing a cellular material, we believe will help extend the lifespan and feel of that product so that end to end, you're getting a more reliable, consistent performing product. And that's ultimately stuff that we can look at in an isolated way because we know from the molecular level, what is the material that we're looking at comparing to other materials that we have experience working with. And uh, how many product designers have the ability to go and and make modifications on a material at a molecular level. I mean, it, even thinking about um, you know specifications, like you can't really dial in specifications for wood 
or or even if you had the ability to dial in specifications for you know a polymer let's say it's abs you know i asked this rhetorically like how many in the ski building business can get the attention of the suppliers upstream on the value chain to optimize or to create a new kind of abs and and, and so having this capability to go back to uh, material science uh, group in Berkeley and say, okay, you know, we want to go to a molecular level and optimize and fine tune biology and fine tune chemistry just opens up a new way to approach the design and the engineering that puts some of these materials in harmony and balance, solving for the material properties that Matt was just talking about. And, and this isn't something, by the way, Jonathan, that we're like, you know, intending to lock this up. We want to make these tools and this methodology available to others over time. But so much more important for us to, you know, roll up our sleeves and like go down this journey of applications development and, you know, building and learning and optimizing uh, because that makes us better at creating these high performance materials. Yeah, I think adding to that also is just the scalability of the technology. You know, historically, I've identified unique plastics, gone to a supply house and asked, what's your thickest dimension, your sheet dimension of that material? We don't make something thick enough to accommodate the thickness of our ski core. Okay, so now we're like limiting our scope of opportunity with even known materials because we can't hit the dimensional specification for a ski. It's a fairly unique product. Long rectangular, it goes through a lot of stress. There's a lot of elasticity required. And so while working with a new origin of material like this, we're able to skip that like rigid infrastructure and work small scale and start building it up, you know, as supply and demand grows, as the application demands, we can accommodate that scalability. But we're not forced to like fill the lines of some massive industrial, uh, you know, injecting uh uh, composites company and or um, trying to you know uh, accommodate the um, the mass volume of polymers in a sheet factory um, because it's just a completely unique set of variables that we deal with in the ski space and we need to have access to technology that accommodates that customization if you will so that this development can occur and the scaling is there I think that's part of like the unlocked potential of biotechnology that I'm learning more and more about every day. But man, I ran up against some pretty like tall barriers of entry looking outwards to new new applications of known materials for ski building because we just didn't have the dimensional access to tap into. And we haven't even touched on the sustainability piece right. in all of this because, it, I mean, in my view, sustainability is not a fleeting trend. It's like here to stay. And I take a lot of pride that in the outdoor recreation industry, like we're, we're leading in that regard, like ahead of a lot of other industries, which I think is super cool. So when you look at product design and how materials are being sourced and thinking about a movement to more sustainable feedstocks, it's a lot of like, hey, could we get, you know, a bio-based polyethylene or, hey, can we get a bio-based ABS? You know, can we increase, can we use a resin system that, you know, is the same thing that we've used for decades, but that is bio-based? 
And I, I just feel like there's a better question to ask, which is, let's think about white space. Let's think about how, like, if we could design the very best product, what would that look like? If we could tap into a whole new realm of feedstock, that also happens to be more sustainable than what we're currently using. And, you know, we've talked to a lot of product designers and, you know, it's, I think, the rare few that, that are comfortable being outside their comfort zone and saying, okay, there's white space here. Like, this is how we're going to tackle it. And that, again, coming back to the first conversations that Matt and I had, like, he was there. And I don't want to, like, distract the conversation, but he was even thinking about materials that <laughs> have application in motocross that has the same sort of issues. And so, you know, the, the ambition as, as we think about Wonder Alpine and as we think about Checkerspot is to bring to life just a different way to think about product design that you know is first and foremost about performance, but views sustainability as a legitimate design constraint. It's why we named the company Checkerspot, which is really unusual for biotechnology companies. Most biotech companies have like gene or enzyme and you know some like hashtag nerd. <laughs> Yeah. And like we've at least in Silicon Valley, like we get a little bit of you like Checkerspot, like why? And, and the reason that Scott and I named the company Checkerspot was after a butterfly, like the logo is a butterfly and it's named after the Edith Checkerspot butterfly that inhabits the Sierra Nevada range and has been negatively impacted by climate change. And a core value of what we're doing and why we're doing it is about sustainability. But you can't have two priorities. You can't say we are both about sustainability and about performance. And when pressed, the number one priority for us is performance. But we just try to do that within this design constraint of sustainability because that's a core value. Let me, let me try to drill down on this question of sustainability then. So there's two questions like, where are you right now in terms of these more sustainable materials? And is that the kind of big interesting question as opposed to like where we might be in two years, five years, 10 years? Where we are today is, you know, acutely focused on how can we think about minimizing like the petroleum inputs to a ski build and dialing up what comes from a bio-based resource. But we are, you know, eyes wide open about, you know, this composite that we've created, although it comes from a bio-based source, is not biodegradable in like a really short period of time. And so that's opportunity for improvement as we roll forward. But but you have to start somewhere. And we feel really good about the fact that, you know, we can continue to evolve and work in moving away from petroleum-based feedstocks. And we already have, not for the launch of the Intention 110, but for in the future, having other kinds of, you know, component parts being uh, high-performance bio-based uh, materials. Yeah, the overall, like, vision of the product trajectory is to make iterative uh, contributing improvements of technology so that year after year, the overall construct of the skis bio content grows. And that's only so 
long, it, it can only occur so long as we meet performance standards that we've set out to achieve. Um, so while we could like, we could rush to like a swap in, swap out biodiversity model and perhaps land on wood skis with leather bindings. The real goal here is to advance modern ski design in a way through thoughtful technology that year after year we're finding applications where we can have a positive influence both from a performance point of view and from a biodiversity point of view. And so we have, yeah, I mean, essentially a, a six-year plan as to how we intend to expand the Wonder Alpine offering and what the construct of those products look like by introducing new platforms, new elements of our technology platform through various different materials, right? We've introduced uh, composites to the core. Um, there's all types of other um, petroleum-based polymers that we can improve what we believe the performance characteristics first and foremost, but by result of that, increasing the overall uh, bio content of the ski's general construct. And so we're going to be known for not only being a bio-based rich product, but also a superior performing product by result of incorporating that type of technology in future years to come. And, and coming back, Jonathan, to your question about, you know, the history and, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars invested. I mean, science and technology development almost by definition, historically is always built on, you know, past success. It's, you know, incrementally getting better and better. And, you know, a lot of the work that was done at, at Solozyme was really at the bleeding edge. I mean, it was just amazing work, but work that, you know, wasn't published, that, you know, didn't go into like the academic realm. And, and Scott and I and, and others that had experience at Solozyme had this vantage point in seeing, you know, what was possible. And it really feels like, you know, we've kind of been sitting on this, you know, secret. And that secret is we can access these unique chemistries that lead to, you know, high performance materials, but really haven't been explored, but be able to produce them at scale at, and at an attractive cost structure in a way that makes it commercially relevant. And so, you know, this isn't like we introduced a new material and that's it. Like we have just scratched the surface. You know, Checkerspot is a tiny company. We you know, are three years into this journey. Um, but I think the conviction and the enthusiasm that we have is born from the realization that there's so many different directions that we can take this. And, and part of what we're trying to do, again, is to bring to life through Wonder Alpine and the Intention 110, what's possible and invite you know, others on this journey with us to say, like, how can we engineer something better? And, and you know, we talked previously about how we've looked at, you know, even thinking about buying other materials to use in, in the ski. And <laughs> there's, you know, one major chemical company that has been innovating in you know, a type of material that's used in ski building, that they're commercializing something that's green, but it, you can't use it in skis yet. And we approach them about like, hey, like, wouldn't this be great to you know, launch as part of Wonder Alpine and the Intention 110? And they were like, yeah, it's just, it's really small. It's not that interesting for us. Like, you know, we're not down with that. And I completely get that and respect it from a business decision perspective, 
But that at the same time is precisely the opportunity that we're pursuing because others just aren't paying attention in that way. And so uh, the, the final thing that I, I would you know, point out is that you know, we're using a resin system as well that you know, wasn't innovated by CheckerSpot, but that has bio-based content. But it's absolutely a high-performance, top-notch uh, material. And so there's a lot of things that we think about in terms of product design and accessing these high-performance materials and like the future, even extending to how we can address product at the end of life. And that's probably you know, subject matter for another conversation. But there's really cool things happening in terms of looking at how microbes can you know, biodegrade materials much more quickly than the natural environment. And that's an area where we are long capability in terms of molecular biology. So this is what we're gonna do here. We are going to be running a separate conversation over on our Gear 30 podcast channel, where we are gonna just pepper you with questions about Wonder Alpine and your hatred of vowels. And uh, we're gonna talk more about this first ski, the Intention 110. So that will be rolling out this Friday. And then so with the rest of our time here, I guess I wanna go kind of full macro and like zoom out on this and like, let's get back to talking about the biggest, broadest moonshot application potential for microalgae, the material that we're currently kind of most focused on. Talk to me about the promise of microalgae. That's a sentence I never thought I would say in my life. I mean, I, I feel like you just uh, lobbed it up with the term moonshot because space travel is, and things that are happening within NASA looking at microalgae huh. are really fascinating. And that applies both in terms of uh, human nutrition and food, um, which when you start contemplating you know, space travel to Mars, as an example, is a huge consideration. Um, but also, I mean, you think about something like, I mean, we've done work at CheckerSpot in partnership with uh, a group out in Minnesota, um, taking our proprietary polyol and combining it in 3D printing to 3D print parts. Really, really cool. Coming back to space travel, you could see if you had fermentable sugar and if you had these strains and a fermenter, you could like create triglycerides. You could then you know, combine or use chemistry to get to that polyol and then 3D part, 3D print parts that might break on this journey to Mars. Food, as I mentioned before, is a huge area. And, and it might make sense to just take a step back and talk a little bit about why microalgae are so interesting. And if, if we reflect to, in our basic high school biology class, and you know, how the planet started with like single-celled organisms. Those were you know, microalgae and cyanobacteria. And microalgae gave rise to all higher plants. And so when, when you think about whether it's you know, a plant coming from the Amazon or you know, the Arctic tundra or you know, a coconut tree, palm tree, like, it, it all descended from microalgae. And so that's at the core of what 
we can unlock in terms of this capability to produce point molecules that these rare specialty plants can make, but produce it through fermentation in a big system. And so, you know, what what do we use as a planet in terms of oils? I mean, there are literally tens of thousands of products that span food, nutrition, personal care, you know, industrial applications like automotive, aerospace, um, transportation fuels, all coming from oils. And, you know, there's, you know, basically three sources of oils. There's, you know, the vegetable oils like palm, soy, canola, um, there's petroleum, and then there's animal fat. And that's it. And so in a way, we're tapping into a new source of oil that's coming from microalgae. And like even thinking about petroleum as an example, I mean, we extract petroleum as a fossil fuel from the earth. And what is petroleum? It's fossilized plant-based oil. And so it all came from this single-celled organism. If you really distill down what we're doing, it's accelerating the process of getting to that oil but doing it through technology in a really directed and intentional way. So where does this microalgae come from? I'm assuming, I'm tempted to guess it's like from like Sturbin's dirty laundry basket or something, (laughs) but I'm not sure there's maybe enough to build skis, you know, just from his dirty clothes pile or something, but. There, there are strains of microalgae and other microorganisms, frankly, for that matter, that exist all over the planet that people go out and collect and study. Um, there are libraries generally managed in the academic realm or through nonprofits that, um, that keep these and catalog different strains of microbes, including microalgae. Um, at Checkerspot, we're not out in the world, you know, in you know, hip boots, like in marshland, like looking for new kinds of strains. We go to these libraries and, and then we have screened thousands of strains and we have uh, an automation process at Checker Spot. So using robotics to like rapidly screen these single celled organisms for um, what are called phenotypes, like functional properties of these strains that we know are important in terms of being able to produce what we're trying to produce, and most importantly, that can scale, that we can use in the context of manufacturing. Um, the way that the process works and the platform that we built at Checkerspot is growing these microalgae in fermenters. And, and so what that means is not what most people typically associate with microalgae, which is photosynthesis. So we're not like, you know, we don't have open ponds and we're not using, you know, sunlight and carbon dioxide to uh, grow microalgae. Instead, fermenters, so think, you know, how beer is made, and, you know, big steel tanks or how, you know, drugs are produced through fermentation, big steel tanks that grow microalgae and we feed the microalgae sugar, fermentable sugar. The microalgae consume the sugar and you know, use that sugar to grow and then use that sugar to produce oil. It's really no different than you know, what do we do as, as people when we get particularly stressed, we probably eat a little bit more and we really like sweet food. And what happens when you eat a lot of sugary sweet food? It turns to fat, it turns to lipid, it turns to oil. And that's how we store it. 
microalgae are no different. And so we can grow microalgae in fermenters and then we stress them with growth conditions that then, you know, gets them into the lipid phase of production to produce oil. And, you know, sitting here on the table is example of dried microalgae. Those are single-celled organisms that looks like a, you know, fine white powder by weight at 60 to 80% oil. So that's some pretty fat algae. And then we have a process to extract the oil, to pull the oil out of the cell. And that's what is in that other uh, glass vial, which is you know, refined, bleached, deodorized, purified algal oil. The molecular foundry at Checkerspot is focused on creating those novel kinds of oils. We then have a second piece to our capability, which is all about chemistry and polymer science. So we can then take those oils and apply chemistry to get to these materials, whether those are polyurethanes or coatings and finishes, which is, again, where we've started. And then third and finally, we have uh, the design lab in Salt Lake City, which Matt leads, which you know is all about prototyping and building parts and products based on the materials coming off of the capability. And that is such a critical piece to the laboratory for us. It, it, it allows us to be able to, number one, bring to life what's possible with the performance features, but to learn and to see how we want to continue to optimize and innovate and improve what's coming off of the molecular foundry and that chemistry capability. And, and I think that that's a piece that, um, and that piece being applications development. That's something that I think is an enormous opportunity for the industrial biotechnology area in general to continue to focus on building. Because again, that's the so what of all of this amazing science and technology that is being built up in different places around the world. By the way, um, molecular foundry that should definitely be like a band name. So I think <laughs> heavy I, metal. You think? No, I'm thinking more like kind of a little bit, a little bit of techno vibe. Mm. You know, songs like uh, "Let's Hear It for Lipids," <laughs> and uh, so that's just a, that's another free potential marketing tip. I mean, you'll be the first biotech company with its own sort of in-house band. Yeah, really. that's perfect because I. I have recently picked up the guitar, and so I'm ready to go mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of the molecular foundry, the band. Yeah, yeah. and I think we can really improve the overall like aesthetic of our lab coats. You know, perhaps ripping some sleeves off of them. Yeah, and, you know, maybe a larger back print. You you see where I'm headed? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm I'm envisioning. It. Right now, it's a very you know standardized patch. It's a checker spot, but I think molecular foundry in kind of a, a band travel tee <laughs> decor would be a lot more enthusiastic. Yeah. So let me ask, like, you guys have rolled out Wonder Alpine. How has this impacted, if it has, how Checker Spot is now being viewed? Or is this too early? Is this under the radar? Talk to me about, like, what this has looked like for Checker Spot. It has been really helpful in being a focus forcing mechanism for CheckerSpot. I mean, even thinking about ways that we can continue to innovate in other parts in ski construction has unlocked some really interesting opportunity sets. And we will be talking more about that in the future at some point. Um, but 
but more importantly, like even in the context of working uh, in partnerships, like we've announced one major joint development project with a Japanese chemical company by the name of DIC. And DIC has been enormously supportive and interested in tracking the progress with Wonder Alpine because, again, it's an extension of the laboratory and, and they want some visibility into what we've learned and what we're seeing as we continue to, to innovate in applications development. Um, and, and even as we've been establishing new relationships with whether it's big consumer brands or whether it's other chemical companies, um, what we're doing is probably reflected in this conversation isn't totally straightforward. Like, wait, what? Like you're engineering microalgae to, in a you know, fermentation-based system with fermentable sugar to produce triglycerides for materials like that has some, it's kind of esoteric. And so with, with some consumer brands and with you know, some chemical companies, being able to have something concrete and substantive to say, yeah, when we talk about engineering for performance, like let's tell you about this product here on the table that is a composite derived from microalgae that has these performance features. And, and oh, by the way, we're manufacturing this. And so we understand the cost structure and we understand the supply chain. And you know we understand what the consumers are feeding back. That all of a sudden, shifts the conversation. Like all of a sudden you're not, you know, presenting pretty PowerPoint slides about what the future might hold. You're talking about what you've done. You're talking about what you're delivering. And that is incredibly valuable in terms of continuing to advance the platform in its entirety. And, and again, tapping into some of these really important partnerships that we want to foster and develop as we get this technology out into the world more broadly. This has been cool. Appreciate you two taking the time. And then, uh, like we said, we're going to have a continuation of this conversation where we're going to drill down harder on the Wonder Alpine side, and we're going to get into some ski nerdery and the like. And uh, I think you've given us a pretty good handle on the kind of promise and potential of all that you guys are working on. Thank you, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having us. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Matt and Charlie for the conversation. And you can learn more over at checkerspot.com and at wonder, that's W-N-D-R dash alpine.com. And don't forget to check out this Friday's episode of Gear 30, where I will be going into more detail with Matt about Wonder Alpine and their very first new ski. I also want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode. I want to thank you for listening. And now, please take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.